Hello! Welcome back to Slate Money. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi. I am here with Elizabeth Spires, who has written a great piece for the New York Times this week. Hello. We are going to talk about Elizabeth's column in the New York Times, all about strivers and Tom Wamsgans. That is going to be in the Slate Plus, though, because we have a packed show this week. We are going to talk about Target, Budweiser, and all of the other gay-friendly companies who have been targeted by anti-woke mobs. We are going to talk about NVIDIA, which is soaring through the stock market on the strength of the AI boom. We are going to talk about Germany, which is now officially in a recession. We have a jam-packed show, is all I can say. So it's all coming up on Slate Money. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, Emily, I really want to ask you about anti-woke activism, which I feel is new this year. I haven't really seen it in the corporate context before, and it's hitting target right now, and it hit Budweiser a few weeks ago. Can you just bring me up to speed on this? Because I feel I'm in a world that I don't understand. Yeah, so companies have long faced backlash for doing things around LGBTQ rights, but definitely something changed earlier this year when Bud Light sent some promotional Bud Light to a transgender woman who then posted about it on TikTok. Right, Elizabeth, TikTok? Yeah. Her name is uh, Dylan Mulvaney. Dylan Mulvaney. And that just set off this like immense... I guess you called it anti-woke backlash. I guess we can say that. But it, it created immense backlash and really a drop in sales of Bud Light in some places in the country and launched a thousand think pieces and just like a lot of anger that was atypical. And now this week, Target has big pride displays in all of its stores and conservatives are going in the stores and getting really angry about these pride displays, you know, like rainbow colored merchandise. Um, what did I see? Like a yellow hoodie that says not a phase and some baby clothing like with rainbows on it and conservatives just freaking out about this. And Target then this week said they would put some of these displays in the back of their stores instead of in the front and pull some merchandise as well, seeming like the company is kind of caving to the backlash, which is, I think, unusual. So that's sort of what's going on. I'm in California this week, and apparently there was a big thing with the L.A. Dodgers and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Like, Los Angeles is, uh, you know, sophisticated and very sort of 
cosmopolitan city where, where everyone knows lots of gay people. And if it's happening in LA, and I think, and the, and the general sort of way that these things work out, if you look what happened with Budweiser and with Target and with the Dodgers, is that the corporations want to stand by their stated principles, but also they don't want to alienate a significant customer base. And so they try and navigate a kind of middle way. And then, of course, the left is like, you're caving, and then they have to sort of like tack back towards the sort of gay-friendly side of things. And then eventually, you know, they muddle through somehow. But now it really does seem that you can't just you know, slap rainbows all over everything on in June and be like, yay, gay pride, and everyone's going to be happy for you because you risk this backlash. And I'm super interested in what you're saying about how, like, there has always been some kind of opposition to this. And because you've almost certainly been following this more closely than I have, can you tell me a little bit more about what form that opposition used to take? And is it better targeted, more weaponized, more effective right now somehow? You know, part of what's happening is that there's been a little bit of an Overton window shift where it's, I wouldn't say it's socially acceptable, but I think open homophobia in the discourse right now is acceptable in a way that it wasn't three or four years ago. So there's always been, you know, people on the Christian right who oppose any kind of display that has anything to do with the LGBTQ community because you know, there, there's a whole swath of America who believes that being gay by itself is sinful. But they haven't historically used boycotts as a mechanism, I think partly because direct action was always viewed as something the left does. But I think part of what's happening, too, this is not totally unrelated to DeSantis and Disney. I think conservatives saw an opportunity. And there's a well-known right-winger named Matt Walsh who sort of stated this explicitly a few months ago. He said, um, the goal is to make pride toxic for brands. And so that's exactly sort of what they're trying to do. They want no visibility for pride whatsoever. So one of the tactics that they're using is to sort of mislead people about what these products are by suggesting that they're all being marketed to children. <laughs> so, and then in the case of Target, a lot of the products were really designed for adults. They're in the adult section. Yeah, exactly. Like, th this seems to be one of the themes of the, you know, I'm going to keep on calling it anti-woke, even though I probably shouldn't. Like, this sort of new trend in American society is to sort of particularly double down on whenever children are, you know, exposed to LGBTQ content, but specifically the T as well. I think that what we've seen over the past two or three years is a significant increase in transgender visibility and transgender pride and anti-trans in particular sort of backlash and you see this in bathroom bills and bills against you know gender affirmation surgery and all of this kind of stuff so it's definitely part of the political discourse and you know if we just go back as say four years pride was gay pride and now it's become much more trans-focused, people have found that kind of way in to object to it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the backlash comes from transgender people being more visible now, and the backlash has been really fierce. And the conservatives who Elizabeth are talking about have really leveraged mainstream America's maybe more discomfort with transgender people into really like hatred and bigotry towards all LGBTQ people there. I mean, there are hundreds of bills at this point in the United States, you know, trying to restrict LGBTQ people in, in various. And, 
you know, companies aren't social activists. So it makes perfect sense to me that a company like Target would pull back or Bud Light would, you know, fire the executive responsible for sending beer to a trans woman. Yeah, companies reflect what's going on in the culture. They don't really set the trends. So I would expect to see more of this happening, more retrenchment from corporate America, despite what some companies are saying, like, no, no, we're still committed to gay pride. Like, I would think there would be more. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I think, you know, part of what's happening, too, is that the LGBTQ community is responding and saying, look, for years, you know, we've been critical of what they call rainbow capitalism, where you're Mm -hmm. creating products around pride and stuff like that. But, you know, we would rather have pride being, you know, kind of more visible in the culture. But if you're going to commercialize this stuff, then you owe it to the community to also be supportive when there is backlash, because there's always going to be backlash against marginalized communities, particularly from the Christian right. Let me pick up on this idea of rainbow capitalism, because I think this is super, this is at the heart of it, right? Is, you know, why is it that every June, every single consumer-facing brand in America splashes rainbows on top of everything, right? Is it an internal thing, mainly just to show their employees how, you know, gay-friendly they are? Is it an external thing to try and attract gay dollars from gay customers? Is it really not a capitalist thing at all, and it's actually just because they, you know, believe in the cause? Like, what is the reason for it? It's a capitalist thing. I mean, and partly because, you know, more people are identifying as being gay or trans or, you know, something in the LGBTQ plus continuum. And so, you know, the numbers are pretty clear. In 2021, around 7% of the population identified as LGBTQ plus, and that's up from 3.5% in 2012. So they view this as a growing market and it skews younger and so it's not it's not really unsurprising that a big consumer brand would want to target a younger, growing audience. I don't think it's you know altruism on any level. No, no. I, I just want to be clear about this. Like the idea is that if I'm a brand who slaps rainbows on everything every June, that will make it more likely that that younger, growing audience will buy my product. That's the yeah. You're why signaling to it. that community that you're making things for them. You know, and they feel more represented, so they they have you know better, fuzzier feelings toward the brand. It's nice to feel welcome at a store, retailer. I mean, it is for capitalistic reasons, and you know, this isn't altruism for companies to be doing this, though they try and spin it that way. I think, but on the other hand, it's really important part of the culture that companies do this at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Even though it's for business reasons, like it's really nice (laughs) to have LGBTQ plus people feel welcomed at the nation's biggest corporations. I can walk into a Target store with my kid and be like, oh, look at this, you know, pride. There's also, because this is fairly new as a tactic on the right, there's a kind of ahistoricity to it. You know, Bud Light has been gay friendly for decades and they've done pride promotions for decades. You know, Bud Light was sort of one of the preferred beers after the Stonewall riots because they were supportive of the community. So this isn't a new thing, you know, and Target's been doing it for over a decade. It's just Mm -hmm. that now that it's acceptable, there's the right things, it's acceptable to be very openly homophobic about things by suggesting that these things are damaging to children. You know, this seems like a more effective tactic for them or it's a tactic that they're embracing. 
So I think we, you know, you may be correct, Emily, that we'll see more of it. But I do think that corporations are going to adapt to this kind of thing and and you know learn how to respond to it better without just shoving all their pride merch in the closet. I don't know. I mean, I've done a little bit of reporting on, you know, there's a lot of backlash also to ESG or environmental, social and governance efforts or whatever. And there are some companies now in response to that backlash, which is kind of similar to the anti-transgender backlash, who are just staying more quiet about what they're doing. There's a term called green hushing. That's like companies are still doing their environmental stuff, but they don't put out as many press releases. And it's weird because I was always one of the people, like back when I was at HuffPost, who would call out companies for hypocrisy, for issuing kind of press releases about, here's what we're doing for the environment. Here's what we're doing for the gays. You know, here's what we're doing for women. And I'd be like, yeah, okay, but they did this press release, but here's what they're really doing, you know. But to see all of that go away is also a worrying sign. Yeah, it was a little hypocritical all along, Turns out you need a little hypocrisy to keep things. Well, it also just progress. normalizes, you know, caring about the environment or or seeing mm-hmm. gay and trans people in the community. Normalizes it, yeah. And I do think there's a move away along all these socially progressive lines. And I think part of it was sort of the conservative response, not only to more transgender visibility, but a response to where companies landed. And it's been three years since George Floyd was murdered because there was such strong corporate support for Black Lives Matter. I sense that it kind of freaked out some people who don't think Black Lives Matter, you know, and who are worried about companies being socially progressive. Okay, let's take a quick break and then talk about NVIDIA because, oh my God, the amount of money they're making is kind of crazy. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so NVIDIA, $11 billion of revenue or something. This is the ultimate picks and shovels stock. Everyone is piling into AI. There's all of this AI hype. And if you're investing billions of dollars in AI, the number one thing you're investing those billions of dollars in, beyond computer scientists, is NVIDIA chips. NVIDIA chips turn out to be the ones that are best suited for training up these large language models and whatnot. And it is causing NVIDIA to become the fifth largest company in America. It's worth more than Facebook. It's worth more than Tesla. Emily, is this a harbinger of the you know AI-driven economy to come? Or is this just an idiosyncratic story about a single stock? Yes, both of those things. <laughs> I don't want to commit and say, because I, I don't know what's coming, right? I'm no 
I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but it does seem like this could be the first rung on the ladder of some kind of new transformation in tech to an AI-driven tech economy. So that's possible that it's not just a one-off. Someone shared this cool chart. I thought it was a cool chart on Twitter. I think it was a Morgan Stanley chart. It basically showed how the mobile internet boom kind of worked across different companies. And it also, it started in chips, in Qualcomm with chips and the Qualcomm stock goes up and then it moves to the hardware and Samsung and Apple stock go up. And then in the final stage, it moves to the software and the services, you know, the Google and the Facebook go up. So maybe something similar will happen with AI where it starts with the very basic building block of a chip and then it moves into like, here's the hardware you need and here's the software you need, or maybe the next two rungs or something different. But it does seem like this NVIDIA stock isn't a blip. It could be just the first piece of a boom. It's also important to understand what NVIDIA chips do specifically. NVIDIA typically makes chips for the gaming sector in particular, and and they're used for image processing. So the sort of sector of generative AI that really deals with creating images from scratch, companies like MidJourney, that sort of thing. NVIDIA seems like an obvious place that you would go for that infrastructure because that's who VR companies are buying chips from for immersive VR you know, if you're looking for the highest end processor that really works with images, that they are the number one company for that. It's much more than just images, though. Like, it's large language models more generally. The point about image processing is that what you're doing is you're processing a large amount of information that's coming at you at once, right? If you're looking at anything out of your eyes, you're having photons coming at you from all directions and what your brain has to do is process all of those photons simultaneously to turn it into like oh that's a cat right which is a very different kind of thinking if we're talking about artificial intelligence here from you know if you give me a long division arithmetic problem and you say what is 8,427 divided by 36 then what I have to do is I go step by step, I do this, and then I do this, and I do this, and I do this. And then that's a much more sort of like linear processing thing rather than a parallel processing thing. And historically, the Intel chips and the, you know, the kind of chips that you find in processors and computers have been optimized for linear processing rather than parallel. And it's been the NVIDIA chips, the, the graphics has been the one area that you really need to worry about parallel processing. And the thing that you need to do when you're training up a large language model is not to do do this then do this then do this it's just like ingest absolutely enormous amounts of information it doesn't need to be images it can be words it can be anything you want and build it into a broader conception of what is this world that i'm looking at and how does it work and that is you know more fundamentally why nvidia is ahead of the game on this one so what do you think? Do you think this is the start of a new AI boom? NVIDIA is the first stock to blow up and there'll be more? You know what? Honestly, I'm I'm skeptical still. I'm probably at the skeptical end of the AI, you know, hype spectrum. It is very easy to explain the NVIDIA boom just very simply on the basis of cash flows you know they came out with these astonishing numbers of how much money they expect to make because there are all of these companies out there whether it's 
OpenAI or Anthropic or DeepMind or whatever this company that Elon looks like he's going to start up or whatever, who are all rushing to throw money at AI. And if all of these very rich companies are rushing to throw money at AI, that money goes to NVIDIA. The question is, do those companies who are throwing money at AI, do they actually create any value from it? And are they are they going to turn those, in, are those investments going to be profitable? And so far, there's not a huge amount of evidence for that. And I don't believe that large language models are AI. I think that they're fun to play with for the time being, and you can do some interesting things with them. I don't see them really transforming the economy. I do think there are other forms of AI which could, in theory, but we haven't developed them yet, and we don't know when they're going to come along. And I'm just very cognizant of the Web3 slash metaverse boom, you know, which also had billions of dollars of investment and so far has basically nothing to show for it. And it's very easy to get swept up in hype. And especially when you have investors who are willing to assign massive valuations to companies that throw AI in their name somewhere, then like everyone is going to try and pay lip service to the idea that they're an AI company. And so I can definitely see a case for this is good for NVIDIA for the time being while the hype cycle is at its peak. But then if nothing really happens, then that will have been a great profit engine for NVIDIA for some amount of time. And then we'll go back to where we were. Like that is definitely a possible outcome. I think there's a difference between companies like OpenAI that are explicitly AI companies. And a lot of companies are you know, buying these chips because they already have LLMs built into their tech. And they aren't nominally AI companies, but they're using the tech. And so I think that's really what's driving the growth. It's not the standalone AI companies. Um, and I just have trouble imagining that that's going to get rolled back. No, I'm not saying it's going to get But like, OK, so let's think about a good example of something that Axios just did, right? We have five years worth of or more than five years, maybe six or seven years worth of Axios Pro Rata newsletters, right? Which is this amazing newsletter that comes out every day written by Dan Primack. And each newsletter has this long list of private equity deals and VC deals. And he just writes them in words. And for years, a whole bunch of people have been asking, can you turn this into a searchable database? And for years, we've been like, that will be so much work we would love to, but it would be horrendously expensive. And then a few months ago, we just said, oh, we can pull this, you know, AI thing down off the shelf. I don't know which one we used, you know, one of those models that you can just download or outsource. And we set it to work on the archive of ProRata newsletters. And, you know, hey, presto, now we have a searchable database of ProRata deal information. And that's amazing. And we could never have done it without AI. And on some level, there's probably like three levels down. There's some company that we used to run the computers, you know, in the cloud. And those computers in the cloud were running on NVIDIA chips. And, you know, NVIDIA made some money from us doing that. And maybe, you know, with any luck, we'll make money from productizing this. And so it is a way to make money. I do see that. Right? So your point is, well taken. I just don't know how much that's going to be a sort of big profit engine for the broader economy. It seems like AI could represent a sea change for how everyone uses technology. And if that's true, that's money. You know what I mean? Scott Rosenberg and also in Axios, not to keep plugging Axios, but <laughs> got to make a living. 
he also had a good piece out today about how AI is sort of a new interface for people and that every sort of big advancement in tech involved changing the way people interface with computers. So Windows was a big breakthrough because before Windows existed, no one knew what to do with the computers. It was hard to really use them. And then Windows kind of changed the game and it took a while to figure out exactly how it would change the game, et cetera, but it did. And then um, mobile web was like a new way of interfacing. Touch screens is a new way of interfacing. And at every stage, apps even, people are talking to computers in a different way. And every time the way we talk to computers changes, money pours in because software has to be updated. Hardware has to be updated. There are new inventions. You know, We don't really know right now all the ways the NVIDIA chips will wind up making its way into various AI products that consumers will use. It'll take a long time, but I do feel like it's going to happen. It's a real thing. Whereas with Web3, like I still really don't know what that means. And I didn't at the time either. Now I'm more like, right. things could happen. This seems real. Like I, I don't fully conceptualize all the ways AI could be used, but I can see pretty easily how it would, you know, transform Google searches or make Google searches obsolete or whatever. Like you can kind of get a sense that this is big, right? Yeah. It, it, and especially with the chat interface, the chat interface is a new interface. You just ask a question in language and, and you get like useful information back or pictures back, you know, and that's, that's a big it deal. It feels like magic. It, it, it feels amazing. One of the interesting wrinkles to it, of course, is that the cost of a computer using AI to respond to a chat request is like three or four orders of magnitude greater than the cost of using a computer to respond Mm. to a search request. And fulfilling search requests is so cheap that you can pay for it just by selling search results, you know, ads on a page. And that's how Google makes all of its money. And it's incredibly profitable because it makes so much more money, in fact, from advertising than the cost of running those computers to do the search. Like, search is a little bit like software, right? Like Microsoft Word or Microsoft Office or anything like all those other previous big profit engines, which is that the marginal cost is very close to zero. Once Microsoft has developed Microsoft Office, the cost of selling one new you know, copy of it is basically zero. And the cost of doing one search for Google is basically zero. The cost of doing one AI response is not zero. And it really transforms Mm. the economics of the IT industry to make it much more similar to the economics of any kind of, you know, old fashioned manufacturing industry, which is that you have unit costs and you need to sort of recoup those unit costs somehow. And we have been so accustomed and acculturated in tech to this idea that you can do things for free that I do wonder where the revenues are going to come from. Only time will tell. (laughs) (laughs) Emily you're fired I do just want to say that I put this in my newsletter this week NVIDIA has a PE ratio of over 200 which is absolutely crazy for a company that went public in 1999 and is worth hundreds of billions of dollars it's like that doesn't happen you know it's a mature company and it's trading at over 200 times earnings that is wild and that's because people believe in this in this AI future, and they, it's once again it's like a like a startup. Not it's like a startup. It is like no, but seriously, right. like there are a lot of startups up there. I'm sure Elizabeth has worked for some of them who would kill for a 200x <laughs> earnings valuation. You know. Okay, let's take another break and talk about Germany. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, so really bad news coming out of Germany. We we have some very interesting economic data this week. The United States is looking very hot. We had what's known as PCE, personal consumption and expenditures data, out on Friday showing inflation is entrenched, showing spending really strong, showing corporate profits going up, and basically the U.S. economy being so hot the, the Fed is going to continue on its rate hiking cycle. It looks like they're actually going to hike rates at the next meeting now, which we didn't think they would like a week ago or even just a couple of days ago. So that's great news in the sense for America. It means we're doing great, albeit with entrenched inflation. If you go across to Europe, you see inflation that's even higher and you see the economy just super sluggish. Germany is now officially in recession. They've had two consecutive quarters of negative growth, which is their definition of recession. The UK is looking utterly miserable with just insane degrees of inflation. We have food inflation in the UK running at 19%. We have just these inflation numbers that the Bank of England seems to be incapable of bringing down. And then across Europe more generally, there seems to be this problem of they have the same or worse inflation that we are struggling with in the United States. But what they don't have is the upside, which is the tight labor market and the economic growth and the strong consumer spending and all of the things that make people happy. So, yeah. What do we make of that, Elizabeth? Well, I wonder how much of it has to do with uh, sort of German cultural reaction to situations like this with austerity, because the consumer spending is way down in Germany. And some of this is, you know, it's also driven by lower demand for or lower export numbers, lower auto sales, in particular around electric vehicles, because now Chinese people who would normally buy German cars are buying Chinese electric vehicles. And so I think there are a lot of different factors, but what do you think is driving the consumer spending being as low as it is? It's a really good question because because in principle, the large decline in energy prices that is global and you know hit Germany the hardest when energy prices went up after Russia invaded Ukraine. In principle, that decline in energy prices that they've seen over the past few months should feed into higher disposable income and higher spending, right? And it isn't doing that. And, you know, I go back to the broad thesis of my book about like the YOLO economy and how people are like, now I've been reminded of how you only live once and we should enjoy our lives while we can rather than, you know, sit around being miserable. And I'm asking myself whether that is more idiosyncratically American than it is global. And it just doesn't really seem to manifest itself in Germany. And I don't, I have to admit, it doesn't seem to be manifesting itself in the UK either. What? 
I had one question about Germany and UK that I don't actually know the answer to, but maybe you do. When the pandemic hit, people got lost their jobs and the US plan was just unemployment insurance. But in UK, and I think in Germany, the plan was more keep people attached to their jobs. Yeah, And I wonder if that kind of plays into this too, because the detaching a lot of people from their jobs at first I thought was a bad idea, but now I feel was a good idea <laughs> because it enables a lot of people to switch jobs and get better jobs and higher pay in the U.S., which I would think would increase people's willingness to kind of spend and like do that, that very American thing of just continuing to spend money, even though prices are higher. But maybe in U.K. and Germany, that's part of the story. Maybe that sort of reduced that kind of dynamism or something. That's just my I, no, wacko I think theory. No, it's not a wacko theory at all. And it's it's something which has been very much fleshed out by economists is this question well, of when you know, when you have this big pandemic shock, do you try to preserve the economy you have, or do you mm-hmm. burn down the economy you have and build something new? And the European impulse was let's preserve what we have and try and keep as much as we can. And people were kept at full pay on payroll for companies they couldn't work for because they weren't allowed to go into work, you know, and basically the government paid their salaries for as long as they were in lockdown. And that did preserve the status quo ante. Meanwhile, you know, the United States, we saw unemployment spike to all-time highs and this terrible, traumatic experience of the pandemic was worse on an employment level. But as you say, it precipitated the great resignation and people didn't just get fired from their jobs, but they started quitting their jobs voluntarily in record mm-hmm. numbers and went off and, and rebuilt something that they were much happier about. And I think a lot of this honestly just comes down to happiness that people spend more when they're happier maybe and that you know we now have people as you say who've who've increased their earnings because of the great resignation and who have much more bargaining power and they can go out and sort of you know take advantage of the phoenix economy that is growing up out of the ashes of the pandemic in a way that if you didn't have any ashes of the pandemic if you just kind of stopped time for a few months and then said well let's go back to how we were that entire dynamic doesn't happen yeah so your thesis is that the germans are more miserable than we are more or less (laughs) that's the weird thing felix because if you look at a lot of the consumer sentiment data in the u.s i mean americans don't seem that happy (laughs) yeah and we're all convinced there's a recession right we've we've all been convinced that there's a recession for the past two years when there clearly hasn't been so yeah it is messy there's no simple narrative here that completely makes sense. No. I mean, I mean, one simple narrative that makes sense for Germany is just like they did have an energy shock that was tremendous, far more than we did. And some of their manufacturing companies had to like slow production and things like that. And that we didn't have to do that in the U.S., that we didn't have the same. I mean, yes, gas prices were high. Yes, for sure. My oil bill was insane. But like, it's not the same as companies stopping making stuff. I do think that Elizabeth's point about China is an important one. The, the German economy has historically been driven by super high-end manufacturing. And people buy German manufactured goods because they are the best in the world. And then everything stopped. And we started anew globally and we kind of looked around and we said what should we buy what goods should we buy and german manufactured goods are still the best in the world but chinese manufactured goods are extraordinarily good and we i think 
came to a sort of global collective conclusion that maybe we don't need the best in the world. Maybe we can have like extremely good, but not the very best, which means Chinese rather than German. And they don't need to get better than Germany to beat Germany. They just need to get good enough that you're like, I am perfectly happy with a Chinese car. And I was in New Zealand a few months ago, and there are a lot of Chinese cars on the road there. And it makes sense for there to be a lot of Chinese cars on the road in New Zealand because they're closer to China. You can get better support than trying to get someone from Mercedes to fly over to Wellington, you know? So, yeah, I think being the best is no longer necessarily as profitable as it once was. And then the UK, (laughs) the reason they're not doing well is obviously because of Brexit, right? I mean, it's always Brexit. (laughs) If you want a simple explanation that like explains everything, like it's hard to do it anywhere except for in the UK where Brexit really does explain everything. Like 19% food inflation. Yeah, there's obviously a reason for that. Whoops. Because they don't trade freely with their neighbor countries anymore. So there's more friction to get food from other places. So that even higher food prices than in the UK. Yeah, exactly. Like if you are if you are a food exporter in Holland, the UK used to be, if not your largest market, definitely in the top two. And now you're like, there's just way too much paperwork. It's way too much trouble. I can't even, you know, it just doesn't make any sense anymore. And I'm just going to concentrate on the rest of my export markets and leave the UK to its own devices. Incredible. You know, when Brexit first happened and we talked about it, entirely too much on slate money probably and everyone was saying it's going to be a catastrophe it's going to be a catastrophe you sort of expected that as soon as it would happen there would be like a mudslide or you know an earthquake (laughs) and it would be a catastrophe but like that's not how catastrophes kind of work economically it really takes time to shake out and it feels like now we're kind of like slowly coming to see what that means and it's it's kind of sad and you know going back to this idea of of the Phoenix economy. The interesting thing about Brexit is that the actual Brexit date was January 31, 2020, right? Which was right Mm. as COVID was Oh my gosh. (laughs) And so, you know, everything burns down in the UK just as everywhere else. You have the same lockdowns in the UK as you do everywhere else. But then the ability of the economy to reinvent itself and to do fresh, new, exciting things is massively hindered in the UK compared to everywhere else because it doesn't have those global trade relationships that it needs to be able to do that. And so, you know, those poor little phoenixes just kind of die in the ashes and wither away. (laughs) Oh, my God. Poor little phoenixes. I have to lose this (laughs) metaphor, man, but it's so much fun. It's good. Buy the book, everyone. Let's have a numbers round. Elizabeth, do you have a number? My number is 17850 and that's $1. And that is the starting price for the Marcellus Masterpiece Mahogany Casket, which is supposedly what Logan Roy is buried in in succession, but also supposedly. what Ronald Reagan was buried in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, and, do you remember that there's a scene where Kendall Roy says something like, uh, they're talking about what happens when Logan dies, and he says, you know, well, off the rack, the funeral, Reagan with tweaks. So Reagan it's, it's with yeah. supposedly the, the same casket. Tweaks. Use the Reagan casket, for sure. And with improvements, this casket can go as high as $37,000 if you get what? the super blinged out version. Like with Bluetooth and stuff? <laughs> With, with a panic button on the inside as you wake up. Yes. Extra comfy pillows. Yeah. 
I was impressed at the way that the pallbearers don't actually carry the thing. They just like wheel it along on wheels. And it's just like, who's going to be the front right wheel? <laughs> wheel, front man. Right wheel man. Wheel man. Emily, I'm going to steal your number. Okay. Because. There's no way you have the same number as me. I know this. Okay. I'm going to steal the number that you dropped in the Axios Slack this morning, which is $35 okay. million, which is the amount of money that an unnamed First Republic employee was paid in 2022, which is kind of interesting in terms of getting a better visibility into the First Republic business model. The average pay at First Republic compensation expense per employee was $310,000, which is more than Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley is $280,000, right? So it was the people who worked for First Republic were unbelievably well paid. And while First Republic painted itself, and in many ways was, a very consumer-focused, very friendly, genteel, you know, we will help you through your life at every step of the way kind of bank. It was also internally a very red-blooded, eat-what-you-kill kind of place, and it had these incredibly aggressive compensation structures that encouraged its employees to maximize revenues in any way they could. So that would be by selling mortgages, by increasing deposits, by bringing in wealth management clients and all the rest of it. And if you manage to provide excellent customer service to a couple of billionaires and they started giving you money to manage and that kind of thing, you could get up to you know $35 million a year in pay. And this is not senior executive pay. These are just client-facing people on some level. And that is fascinating. And that's more than Jamie Dimon, the CEO of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, makes thirty-five million, right? To be clear, even at J.P. Morgan, there are always, in any given year, there are always employees who make more than Jamie Dimon, mm. right? Yeah, you know, like there, there's always some like hotshot trader on like an energy trading desk or something who makes like more than the CEO in any given year. That happens in every investment bank. But what's interesting is it doesn't just happen at investment banks; it also happened at First Republic, which is not an investment bank. Huh. Well, now they're doing layoffs. I think they're laying off a lot of these guys, right? Right. The First Republic bankers. Yeah. So hope they're okay. It hasn't really been announced yet, but yeah, there will be layoffs. And some people will stay at JP Morgan for a while and then leave. Some will be laid off. Some will stay. But yeah, it's it's going to be a very different vibe going forwards. It was making me think, your number, <laughs> these people are well compensated for, you know, selling products, whatever, mortgages, la, la, la. I was thinking about Wells Fargo, where no one was well compensated and they had to right. like, <laughs> they had to sign people up for these products where people weren't even realizing it. But their incentive only was like, so they don't get fired. It wasn't like, but also, yeah, so they can but make also it was just such a yeah. badly structured incentive <laughs> because the incentives were all done on the kind of like sign people up for a product and then somehow the underpants gnomes will wind up making money, right? Whereas yeah. at least in First Republic, <laughs> You get paid when we actually make money. And if we're, make, if, yeah. we, if, it, if we're making money, then you get like a cut of it. If we're not making money, you don't. Like that makes more sense. Yes. Yes, it does make more sense. So my number is not related to death or anything really important at all. My number is 200. That's the number of potential condiments that can be dispensed by Heinz's new machine called the Remix, which I don't know if Felix is going to be familiar with this. It's like the Coca-Cola has this machine called the Freestyle. You've never seen this. 
It's no. in like movie theaters, fast food restaurants where you can like, you can get Coke, Diet Coke, whatever, ginger ale, but like all different combinations of it. And you press all these buttons and you can have like a lime Diet Coke caffeine free, or you can have like a raspberry Diet Coke with root beer mixed in. And like, you can just go crazy mixing things. So now Heinz is doing this with ketchup and I think it's hilarious. It's <laughs> you basically, you have like four base kinds of sauces. You have your ketchup, ranch, 57 sauce and barbecue. And then you could like add jalapeno flavor or mango flavor. And then you could like adjust the spice. Right. And that gets Whoa. you to like 200 combinations. <laughs> Whoa. Yes. You get so. to dial in your personalized ketchup. <laughs> yeah. You can create your own personalized ketchup. It's not available yet. So you'll have to wait. And I know, Felix, you will be waiting, like, very excited for And this, this is going to be in, like, movie theaters, and I put it on my hot dog? Yeah, because that's what you're doing. You're buying hot dogs in movie theaters. <laughs> There's no way that's happening. <laughs> Elizabeth, do you think Felix buys hot dogs in movie theaters? No. You, no. you could put it on your I fish don't. and chips, I guess. But Yeah. No. Or your fries or your hamburgers or whatever. Go crazy. But where are these machines going to be? If uh, I mean. <laughs> I mean, I love this idea of the machine, but they're not. This isn't like an at-home machine, right? I mean, it has to yeah. exist in some kind of food chain situation. I mean, it would be incredible if it was at home, but yeah, I think it would be like at your <laughs> Wendy's or at your McDonald's or something like that, anywhere where fries are sold. But I read there are technical difficulties getting it, like in the drive-through and whatnot, because it would slow down the drive-through because there's so many possible combinations, right? Oh, for sure. The freestyle machines are always in the restaurant. You don't want to have people like pressing all of those buttons out their car window. That would be a disaster. But I'm into this. I'm like, I'm going to be dialing up the horseradish for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Okay. I think that's it for us this week. Unless you are one of our favorite people, i.e. a Slate Plus member, in which case we are going to talk about Strivers because Elizabeth had a great column about Tom Wamscans and Strivers in the New York Times. We're going to talk about that in Slate Plus. Otherwise, thanks for listening. We are going to be back on Monday with Slate Money Succession, the grand finale, quite possibly the very last ever episode of Slate Money Succession in the history of the world, unless we do another (laughs) one. It will be a little bit later than normal because we don't get screeners for the final episode, but it will come out on Monday afternoon sometime. And that will be produced just like this by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Come back for that and then come back next week for another Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.